You have just entered the Liberty Lighthouse, where we cut through the fog of politics with common sense and logic. Coming to you from Pennsylvania, the state of independence. Here he is, author of the book, Progress, Really? U.S. Navy veteran and your host, Peter Serafine. Today on the Liberty Lighthouse, you are going to hear the first episode ever recorded in the new Liberty Lighthouse studio that I just made. No more recording in my library with all of the echo from the glass and the bookshelves and everything. New, quieter, darn near soundproof, darn near soundproof studio just for recording this podcast. Before we get into the intended topic of tonight's show, which was gerrymandering, and, uh, well, what I thought was a brilliant idea about gerrymandering, I want to talk about one thing that's been in the immediate news, which is the Boy Scouts of America filing for bankruptcy. I talked about the Boy Scouts of America in my book, Progress Really, and I mentioned how the progressive left, the uh, progressive society was destroying the Boy Scouts and the the founding principles of the Boy Scouts. And then shortly thereafter, well, Boy was dropped from their name and the progressive liberal progressive push had had won. They got the okay of the Boy Scouts to allow anybody in. And, uh, well, here it is only about a year later and they're filing for bankruptcy. I hate to say I told you so, but I think we all saw it coming. Personally, I think the uh, fall of the Boy Scouts is an absolutely horrible thing. The Boy Scouts of America has existed for just over a hundred years. They were there to instill Christian values and common sense morality into young boys and turn them into young men. And I Boy Scouts have done some amazing things. Every man who has ever walked on the moon was a Boy Scout. That's impressive. And I really don't understand why progress insisted on destroying the Boy Scouts. The only thing that makes any sense to me is if it was simply because it was a Christian-based organization. And progress is attacking anything Christian. For the last 30 years or so, the Boy Scouts were sued repeatedly for discrimination, even though they were a private organization. And the discrimination laws really didn't apply because they're not an employer. But they got sued over and over and over again. And eventually the Boy Scouts gave in and it was their downfall. And I hope that they're able to come out of this Chapter 11 bankruptcy and uh, go back to the core values that they were founded under. The intended topic for this week was gerrymandering and hopefully coming up with a solution to gerrymandering that we might be able to push in our states. Last week, we came up with, well, what was just about an ideal solution to the Electoral College and everyone's complaints against the Electoral College. And that near-perfect solution made gerrymandering that much more important. So I figured we'd talk about that today. When I decided that we were going to talk about gerrymandering, 
I did a bunch of research like I always do and found out that, well, the solution isn't as easy as we think it is because our government has made districts and redistricting more complicated than it really needs to be. And there's not a surprise. Our government does that for a lot of things. They often make issues more complicated than necessary. And, well, that's kind of what this show is going to morph into, is the more complicated than necessary that our government does a lot. So, for right now, let's stick with gerrymandering in, in uh, congressional districts. Let's start with what is gerrymandering. Well, gerrymandering is the drawing of congressional district lines based on party and strictly to manipulate how much control or power a particular party has over a district. Generally speaking, our Supreme Court has decided that gerrymandering really is a political issue and therefore not a legal issue, and has pretty well stayed out of the topic. However, they have had a couple of rulings. Uh, Reynolds v. Sims, back in 1964, said that Districts had to be roughly equal in population and then later went on to say that there shouldn't be more than a 10% disparity between the smallest and largest district populations. And Westbury v. Sanders says that the districts have to be uh, regularly adjusted. So redistricting needs to happen regularly. And that's generally taken to be every 10 years to coincide with the census. That's how most states do it anyway. So just those two uh, Supreme Court rulings actually destroyed my original perfect, clean, simple idea for eliminating gerrymandering. I'm going to tell, tell you what my idea was anyway. My idea was that congressional districts should contain whole counties and only whole counties, and that no district line should ever cross a county line. So in Pennsylvania, for example... Uh, we have 18 con congressional districts, and we have 67 counties. So just a real simple example, um, we would have five districts with three counties in them, and we would have 13 districts with four counties in it. At least that was, you know, one example. Now, with having highly populated areas and lesser populated areas, I mean, we could certainly have districts that are only one county, say in Philly or Pittsburgh, the densely populated areas of Pennsylvania, maybe a single county is a district. And in the more rural areas, maybe five, six, seven counties are a district. But my idea was to leave the counties whole. Don't divide a county, ever, and only group counties. And ideally, it would be really cool if, say, the county government then tiered up to the state districts, and then the state districts tiered up into the congressional districts so that nobody was, no town or county or anything was ever chopped in half by any of these district lines. So that was my original idea, and it might still be possible uh, with using the one county, uh, one county districts in the dense, densely populated areas, but I don't know if you would be able to get it even enough out. Basically, I was just trying to go with what I learned a long time ago in kitchens, the KISS method. You all remember the KISS method? Do you know, know what the KISS method is? Let's keep it simple, stupid, 
and our government doesn't do that at all anymore. Gerrymandering in Pennsylvania has gotten so bad that we have a, a website called FairDistrictsPA.com. Now, FairDistrictsPA.com is a completely nonpartisan, not red, not blue, not Democrat, not Republican advocacy group trying to create fair congressional districts within the within the state. And they actually are pushing for some of the same ideas I have. They don't want towns cut in half by district lines. That's just silly. So I bet all of your states have organizations kind of like this. The FairDistrictsPA.com is the Pennsylvania version, but I bet all your states have something like that in your state as well. Another idea that came up in conversation with my friend Jamil, you might remember my friend Jamil from the show about the Middle East and the West's culpability of the Middle East, that same Jamil. Uh, he and I were talking one day about gerrymandering, and his idea was that, well, a district should have no more than four corners. And that would mean that every district has to be square, rectangle, parallelogram, trapezoidal, or triangle. I mean, that's no more than four. But anyway, so that you didn't have these like C-shaped districts that went around towns or these funny districts that reach out like a hand to grab one little neighborhood. That is like the epitome of gerrymandering. I was immediately reminded of Jamil's idea when I went to the Fair Districts PA website they have a state of Pennsylvania up in the corner of their website and some theoretical hypothetical district lines drawn on it. And they're pretty close to squares, almost all of them. So that reminded me of Jamil's idea and also points out that Jamil's a pretty smart fella, even if he is a liberal. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Don't go yell, calling in and screaming that I'm being you know, argumentative or anything. I'm just picking on my friend Jamil. I'm not picking on all liberals. There are lots of smart liberals out there. So anyway, back to gerrymandering. Gerrymandering really began in the 1970s because up until then, uh, for whatever reason, districts weren't redrawn very often. And in 1964, we had those two Supreme Court cases that said they had to be roughly equal population and that they had to be adjusted regularly. And shortly thereafter, gerrymandering started to become a really big issue. Now, some people say that it most benefits the uh, Republican Party. That might be true at this particular moment in time because it just so happens that 10 years ago when a lot of these states redrew the district lines, they had uh, mostly Republican governments in those states. But if it happened to be Democrats in control at the time, then it would be mostly Democrats seeing the benefit right now. So just like a last week's Electoral College episode, it is the state's rights, it is the state's responsibility to draw their own districts. So a lot of states have developed a bunch of different ways of doing that. And there are a couple of states that actually use third-party non-governmental committees to draw their, their district lines. And that's probably the most fair way to go unless you've got these rules in place like no crossing municipal or county lines in order to draw districts. But a lot of other states, the committees within the state legislatures draw the districts. And of course, they draw districts to try to benefit them 
as much as they possibly can. So gerrymandering greatly affects the Electoral College, and it greatly affects our ability to elect presidents, and greatly affects how many uh, Congress people get elected to a particular party. So, you know, again, we have 18 districts here in Pennsylvania. The way those lines are drawn determine whether those districts lean Republican or lean Democrat and therefore will elect mostly Democrat or mostly Republican uh, Congress people. So redistricting and the gerrymandering that goes along with it is it, you know, it's pretty impactful. I mean, it can really hit your daily lives in your states. Something that if you haven't looked into, I think you should look at the districts in your own states and see just how gerrymandered they are. All right. I think that's enough on gerrymandering for right now. Uh, we're going to take a little break. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about a couple of other examples, a couple of other places where our government should probably remember the KISS rule and keep it simple, stupid. Don't forget to call me with your questions, comments, and concerns. Call the Liberty Lighthouse at 64MyRights, and I will use your messages in a future show. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Liberty Lighthouse Podcast. Welcome back to the Liberty Lighthouse. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks for sticking around through that break. And now we're going to talk about KISS. No, not Gene Simmons' rock band, but keep it simple, stupid. Uh, general rule of thumb when making a plan for just about anything, keep your plan simple. Our government, and especially our federal government, does not know this adage, or at least doesn't follow this adage. I've got a couple examples that I use regularly, but how this came up as a topic in tonight's podcast is when I was looking into gerrymandering. I thought I had the perfect, simple plan to solve the gerrymandering crisis in our country. But, well, there were some rules that are in place that I wasn't aware of that got in the way. But that made me think, what else do we have like that? And I've got two examples that I use all the time in conversations about our government getting in its own way. One of them, it's tax season. So let's talk income tax, right? So what's the purpose of income tax? The purpose of income tax is to fund our government. If the purpose of income tax is that simple to fund the government, then why is the average income tax bill two, 3,000 pages long and so complicated that it needs another 7,000 pages of explanatory notes about the two or 3,000 pages in the bill. If it was a simple plan, keep it simple, stupid plan, it would be, you know, two pages long and say, if you make more than $50,000 a year, then you have to pay 15% tax on everything above $50,000 a year, period. Income, salary, capital gains, gambling winnings, real estate income, whatever. It's all the same. Give us our 15%. No loopholes, no credits, no deductions. Give us our 15%. Not only would it be fair, but it would be simple. Anybody could understand it. 
and it would be really hard to get out of it, really hard to get around it. But instead, our government puts out a 3,000-page tax law that goes completely against the concept of making money for the government. Because in 3,000 pages, there's probably 45,000 loopholes that you can use to get out of paying those taxes. Especially if you've got a whole bunch of money. Most of the income tax code is about regular, honest-to-goodness, wage-earning income and doesn't necessarily apply to other ways of making money. More loopholes. The simple plan would be to find a line, I said $50,000 earlier, make it you know, two times the, the poverty line, whatever. Find a line and say that if you make less than this, you pay zero. If everything you make above this line, you pay taxes on, and you pay a flat rate that nobody can fight over and argue over. Let me give you a quick little sidebar as to why the graduated tax scale can be a bad thing. When I was younger and working as a cook at Walt Disney World, Christmas time comes around and there's holiday parties in every hotel and you can get as much overtime as you want. And Disney World, believe it or not, is a union gig. So they had this whole, you know, at least eight hours off between shifts rule. Otherwise, you get paid double time. If you were a hard worker and you really wanted to and you worked in the culinary field, for the entire month of December, you could get just double time, all month long, double time as much as you wanted because there was that much work that could be done. But you get the first paycheck after doing that and you see that you jump two or three tax brackets and you're not really making that much more money. You sit down with a calculator really quick and you figure out just how much overtime you can do and still make a decent living. Because eventually, the tax rate went up so high, it just wasn't worth it anymore. And that was me making, you know, less than $10 an hour at the time, if I remember correctly. I'm not sure. The point of that story is that the graduated tax code was counterproductive. Because they made less money in taxes because I stopped working so hard when I made less money. Flat rate tax system. Much more fair, no surprises like the, oh crap, I jumped tax brackets. Okay, so that's example number one. Two or three thousand page tax code goes absolutely directly against the purpose of the tax code, which is to fund the government. It gives way too many loopholes, way too many ways to get out of paying those taxes. Another example Another place where the keep it simple stupid plan would be far more effective than what we've got going on right now in our government is emissions controls on vehicles. Let's assume that the emissions control laws and the pollution laws and the fuel economy laws all have the same purpose, and that is to reduce emissions to keep our planet healthy, right? Makes sense. So, What's the best way to do that? I think the best way to do that would be to tell the car manufacturers that if you want to sell a car in the United States of America, you must get your emissions below this line. Set a line. Wherever you set that line, you got to get below it. Let the car manufacturers figure out how to get below it. Let the engineers who know these vehicles figure out how to get below that line. That's not how our government works. 
how our government works is they come in and say, you have to get below this line and you have to have a catalytic converter and you have to have a charcoal canister and you have to have a fresh air pump into your crankcase, positive crankcase ventilation and an ERG valve and God knows what other pieces of pollution control equipment all have to be on your car and you have to get below this pollution control line or this emissions line. And then, oh, wait, also, you have to get above this fuel economy line. So if you know anything about cars, you know that almost every piece of pollution control equipment that is added to a car robs that car of fuel economy and or power. So to have a rule that says you have to get at least this much fuel economy and then also have another rule that says you have to get below this this, uh, emissions line and you have to have all these pieces of extra equipment on it. They don't all work together. It would be a lot smarter, a lot easier for our government, a lot more simple for our government to say, you must get your emissions below this many pounds of carbon per mile traveled or whatever. However they want to set that line, here's the line, get below it. You figure out how to do it, Mr. Engineer give you an example of how this is counterproductive. My first car that was given to me by my father was a 1976 Datsun B210 with a four-speed manual transmission or four on the floor. For those of you that don't know what four on the floor means, that is a manual shift transmission where you have to change gears with your hand. And it was four different gears. So, my 1976 Datsun B210 4 on the floor got over 30 miles to the gallon. Now, 1976 was before all of these pollution control rules, before it had all of these different pollution control devices on it. Now, let's compare that to my current car. My current car is a 2011 Chevy Cruze Eco. Now, the Chevy Cruze Eco is a regular gas engine. It's not a hybrid. However, it was designed to be as fuel-efficient as possible. The body panels on it are thinner to save weight. It didn't have a spare tire and a jack. It uh, has aluminum alloy wheels, again, to save weight. All these things to save weight. And it has a six-speed manual transmission, where that sixth gear is a super overdrive that you can't use anywhere except on the highway. So this car was designed from the beginning to get the best fuel economy it can possibly get, but still have all of those pollution control critters on it. What do you think it gets for gas mileage? About 33 miles to the gallon, maybe 35, I forgot to look. But it's really not that much better than my 1976 Datsun B210. If it didn't have all of those pollution control things on it, and it just was allowed to run as it is, it would probably get 40, 50, 60 miles to the gallon. So if I'm getting 60 miles to the gallon, I'm using half as much fuel, my emissions will be cut by half just by the fact that I'm using half as much fuel. Wouldn't that be better than having the government say that you need these 45 pieces of equipment in your vehicle and you have to meet all these different rules? Let the engineers and the design team do what they do And they will come up with a better solution than a bunch of people sitting in Washington. Speaking of those people sitting in Washington, why do you think they have so many rules about this? 
well, let's see, you've got the oil lobbyists that really don't want you to reduce the amount of oil they are using. You've got the car manufacturer lobbyists that don't want to take on rules that are going to make it more expensive to do their jobs. You've got the the green initiative lobbyists who say, oh my God, do whatever you could do. You have to save the planet. You got all these different lobbyists that are all pushing for different things. And here's these Congress people are writing these rules to try to make as many of those people happy as they possibly can. It is all about power and control. If it were about saving the environment, they would set a rule, they would set a line, and they would let you make the necessary adjustments to get to that goal. Nearly everything about our government is about power and control. All of these rules about car emission standards are about power and control. The two or three thousand pages of tax code is about power and control. Gerrymandering is about power and control. Our government doesn't care about you. It doesn't care about the environment. It doesn't care about unborn babies. It doesn't care about anything but power and control. And the sooner the masses of Americans wake up, realize that, and stand up to try to do something about it, the better we will all be. You need more examples about keep it simple, stupid, being completely ignored by the our current government? What about those omnibus spending bills that we just passed? The, you know, $1.4 trillion omnibus spending bill that also had stuff in there about studying guns and, and about the age to buy tobacco products and all this other garbage. Is that the simple way of doing things? Uh, a 3,000-page or whatever it was, I don't even remember anymore, a 3,000-page omnibus spending bill? Is that the simple way to do things? Absolutely not. Power and control. If it's that freaking big, nobody's going to read it. Nobody's going to see all the crap that they slid in there in order to get more power and control. Okay, I feel like I'm starting to rant like a conspiracy theorist. So, that sounds like a good place for me to call it a night. Thanks for listening to the Liberty Lighthouse. We'll be back next Friday and every Friday. And uh, until then, protect your liberties. Once they're gone, there's no getting them back. God bless America. Thanks for listening to the Liberty Lighthouse podcast. Be sure to sign up at liberty-lighthouse.com. To download Peter's free ebook from the file share page. And don't forget to call 64 My Rights to leave comments for the show. That's 646 974 4487. If you enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend about Liberty Lighthouse. And wherever you listen, subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. <laughs>